pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. God, I love that song, Father. I love that we have a God that we can run to because we know that you are sufficient. God, we don't have to, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to, we don't have to cry out to a God that, that may not be able to meet our needs, God. But you are completely and totally sufficient to cover all of us, God, to cover our sin, but to cover our lives, Father. And that we can cry out in any moment, in any way. And Father, you are there and you are over and above uh, anything that we could hope, dream, or imagine. And so, God, we praise you for who you are and for your son, Jesus Christ, and for the love that was poured out on us through him. God, I pray that this morning would be honoring to you. I pray that this morning would be something that, that you would receive in your heart and in your ears as something that is sweet and beautiful to you, Father. God, I pray that... <clears throat> excuse me. I pray that, that, God, you would speak through me, Father. God, that you, would, uh, that you would use me as your tool, your instrument this morning, God, to make a beautiful noise and for your saints to uh, be edified, Father. And, and, God, I just pray that you would, uh, you would let your gospel word to, uh, to speak through its messenger, Father, as I stand upon its authority but behind the cross so that you may receive all of the glory. Uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and open up God's Word to Galatians chapter 1. We have begun this series last week called Free. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's where we are. We are in Galatians chapter uh, 1 today. Uh, and I start today by asking you this question. Have you ever been blown away by someone else's sin? Has there ever been a moment where you knew somebody and you found out about a sin that they did and you were absolutely floored by it? Has that ever happened to you all in here? Uh, I know, I know it's happened to me. Uh, I, I remember uh, one time in particular, uh, this was the first time that anything like this had ever happened to me, and I had a, a young lady come up to me and confess that she was struggling with homosexuality. Now, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I, I, I just felt completely uh, dumbfounded. I, I, I was shocked. I was, I was blown away. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to think. I, I am glad to report that, that we loved her through that. We, told, we, we called sin what, what sin was, and we said this was sin, but we loved her nonetheless. And then and, and over time, she, she actually uh, came to know Jesus, and her life has been completely transformed. And I consider that one of the great success stories of the ministry that I've, I've been allowed to be a part of. Okay? Uh, but but that the shock of the moment absolutely blew me backwards. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe it. But something happens to us, and something happens to me in particular, or something has happened to me in particular, I think it's because I've been in the ministry for uh, 11, or right about 11 years now. I think Brother Charles here would probably have a little bit of a bigger resume than me, uh, and, and, uh, and he, he could probably attest to this. But something has happened to me, over the last 10 or 11 years that I am not, generally speaking, shocked by sin anymore. I'm not shocked by it anymore. Now, I don't want y'all going to test this theory, okay? <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. But, but listen, I'm I, I just not shocked by it as much anymore. I've seen it a lot. I've seen and I've heard about it a lot. In fact, it wasn't too many years uh, after this incident with this young lady that, that a man came and, and I, I learned about his adulterous homosexual behavior that uh, and, and this was a man in the church. This was a man not only in the church, but this man uh, was had a, a leadership role within the church. And when I learned about this truth, I wasn't shocked. 
I wasn't shocked. And it's because I'd, I'd, I'd seen it. I'd been there. There's sin. And I've, I've just kind of realized in my heart and in my mind that we're all sinners. That we're all messed up. And apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we're all one decision away from it being as bad as anybody else in the history of the world. And so, so we, we, have this, we have this truth right here before us. And, and, and the reason I bring this up this morning is because I look at my ministry experience and I think... Small. I have a small ministry experience, but when I look at the ministry experience of Paul, I think grand. Okay, I think very, very grand. I think about him uh, uh, debating with Greek scholars uh, over false gods. I was like, I, I've never done that. <laughs> you know, I've never had that opportunity or, or want it. Uh, I, I saw that he was, he was preaching and writing letters to a church. This one church had incestuous relationships in it. This one church had fighting in it. This one church had lawsuits in it. This one church had blatant favoritism in it. This one church had mistreatment of the Lord's Supper in it. This one church had disorderly worship all within the boundaries of this one church. Paul saw a lot, okay? Paul saw a lot. And, and that's just one church. He was a missionary. He's going from place to place to place to place, facing different people with different problems. Okay? And so Paul has seen a lot. Not much is going to shock Paul. But then we get to the book of Galatians. We get to the book of Galatians. And Paul says, I am astonished. I am absolutely astonished. At what I am seeing. And so the, we asked this question this morning. What is it that shocks Paul? What is so fundamentally sinful that even Paul says, wow, I didn't see that one coming. I had no idea that that one was around the corner. Now we're about to start reading in verse 6 here. But I, wanna, I just want to background for what we did in verses 1 through 5. At this point in the letter, Paul has done what he has done in every, every other letter that he has written. He has stated his purposes through the salutation. The first two chapters, like we discussed last week, were defending his authority as an apostle. The second two chapters were defending the purity of the gospel and Jesus alone with no law added to it. And then <clears throat> the, the last two chapters, we're talking about living out that gospel, okay? And so this is where Paul has been in the first five verses. But what we would typically see now in the letters of Paul is after he lays that out, he would say, and I want to give a thanksgiving. I want to say thank you to this church, a prayer of thanksgiving for this church, for what God has done among these people. But Paul skips that in this letter. Paul is so agitated. Paul is so frustrated by what is going on. He is so astonished by what is going on in the church of Galatia that he skips all that. Uh, and, and so he gets right to it. In verses 6 through 10, we have what scholars would call the rebuke. Okay, so we go from our salutation to the rebuke. And let's, let's read that together. Verses 6 through 10. I am astonished. Again, we have that word. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. 
Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so we get to this passage here in Galatians chapter 1, and we see this idea of Paul being absolutely astonished. Now, reading the letter, we get a little more background here that it has not been a long time since Paul shared the gospel with the region of Galatia. It has not been a long time since the gospel has been preached. People have come to know Jesus Christ. Paul has, Paul has laid out the foundational gospel of our sin, of Christ's death, Christ's atonement, Christ's forgiveness, and Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, and, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him. Paul has clearly laid out the gospel to these folks, and it has not been a long time since they've heard it, and they have established their churches. And so Paul lays out this gospel, and basically, he doesn't leave a lot of room for confusion. I like how he puts it in Romans fifteen nineteen. He says, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And so the picture I'm trying to get you to see right here is that there wasn't a lot of confusion about this. It wasn't like Paul went in there and said, believe some of this, believe some of this, we're at a cafeteria line, pick what you want about Jesus. No, this is the truth about Jesus. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Follow this or go to hell. This is, this is the gospel. This is the point. This is, this is what I have in front of you. But after even a short time, the scripture teaches us that the Galatian church began to pervert the gospel. And the word pervert here is translated only two other times in the New Testament. We use the word pervert here, but in Acts chapter 2 verse 20, it says the sun will be turned to darkness. Okay, And this word turned is the same Greek word for pervert. James 4.9, change your laughter to mourning. And so this word change here is the same Greek word for pervert. The idea here is, the, is that of complete opposites. If the sun will be turned to darkness, the sun is light. What is the opposite of light? Darkness, right? So we have a complete opposite here. Change your laughter to mourning. Laughter is an indication of joy. What's the opposite of joy? Morning, sorrow, right. So we have this picture of opposites here. So to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ means to emphasize the opposite of the gospel. And what is the opposite of the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ? It is the death-giving requirements of the law. The death-giving requirements of the law. The false teachers in Galatia were moving the church from liberty to legalism. They were moving the church from liberty to Legalism. It'd be kind of like this. When I was a kid, my father's punishment of choice was riding lines. Now, my dad was a big old dude, so riding lines as compared to taking weapons was probably a good thing. But, uh, but anyways, uh, uh, my dad's punishment of choice was riding lines. So, you know, I would, you know, you'd sit down at that table and, you know, I will not sneak up on my father while he's taking a nap and scare him. I will not sneak up on my father and scare him while he's taking a nap. You know, whatever it is, you just ride it over and over again. If he caught you going, I, 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 down the street, or down the sheet, he would be like, crunch, 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 start over. And so, you, you had to, you had to write these bad boys out over and over and over again. Well, I remember the first time I ever had to write lines. The first time I ever had to write lines, I still lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, so I don't remember how old I was, but I know it was before third grade, or fourth grade. Uh, fourth grade is when I moved to Doretta. And so, so I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I remember it was Christmas time, and I knew my parents were going to get us Christmas gifts. 
And so I heard the car pull up. We lived in a two-story home, and me and my brother were climbing over each other to look out the window. We opened the window. We were trying to be real sneaky. We were trying to be covert. We looked out the window to see what we were getting for Christmas. And sure enough, they opened the van, and they pulled out these boxes, and we saw some stuff. And the problem was we didn't think... Dad might look up. <laughs> and Dad looked up. And he said, Grr. <laughs> and we said, No. And sure enough, whatever day this was, right before Christmas, uh, we began writing lines. And we had to write lines, something to the effect of, I will not try to figure out what my Christmas gifts are before Christmas morning. I will not try to figure out what my Christmas gifts are before Christmas morning. I will not try, you know, over and over and over and over again. Now, like I said, this is the first time I had ever written lines. Like I said, I was very young and I was very, very slow. I remember the punishment. I remember the condemnation was a hundred lines. And after an hour, my dad came in there and he said, let me see how much you've done. And I had been working my little fingers to death. I had been going as hard as I could. And I had produced three lines. (laughs) Now, my dad felt bad for me at that point. (laughs) He decided that he would have a little mercy at that point. And he said, Nelson, don't worry about it. You're done. You've, You've suffered enough. And I said, no, dad, this is wrong. Dad, you gave me a hundred lines. I deserve the hundred lines. So I'm going to finish the hundred lines. Now I'm writing about three lines per hour. So that'll take me about 33 hours, including school, including uh, sleep, including meals and all that kind of stuff. I should be done sometime around New Year's. That's not what really happened, (laughs) but that's, that's what would happen if we, I would be adding an extra burden upon myself that was not required for me to bear. And if, if, if we're honest, and as I look at this, and as I've prayed about this, I think what is so absolutely astonishing to Paul in this letter is that the Galatians are putting on themselves a burden that they do not need to bear. They are making the law a part of the gospel and the law has already been accounted for. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. They're putting a burden on themselves that they did not need to bear. And over and above this, Galatia is a Gentile province. And so this isn't even part of their heritage. This isn't even part of who they are. It would be like a kid going from a house that has spankings to a house that writes lines. And when they're told to write lines, they said, no, please, I'll write the lines, but give me a spanking too. It's putting a burden on yourself that is not necessary. But unfortunately, this is exactly where we find ourselves today whenever we add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ other than Jesus Christ. It's the exact same thing. I think there's this mindset because of the way we've been trained over the years that Bible study and prayer, or if we put those together, a quiet time is the requirement of good Christian living. It's a requirement of good of being a good Christian. And that's legalism. That is absolute legalism. That is adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ what Jesus himself has not added to it. Our quiet time ought to be the result of a heart desiring to spend time with our Savior. Okay? Uh, I've heard people criticize churches because they have gotten rid of their Sunday evening services. 
But that's legalism. Sunday night services ought to happen because we can't get enough of worshiping our king and celebrating his son as a body of believers. Not because it's sinful. Not because it's sinful not to have it. When we add anything to the gospel message over and above Jesus Christ, such as Jesus plus church, or Jesus plus morals, or Jesus plus social justice, or Jesus plus witnessing, then we have made a different gospel, which Paul declares is no gospel at all. It is no gospel at all. We are adding an unnecessary burden that we cannot bear in place of the grace of Jesus, which bears all of our burdens for us. Warren Wearsby puts it like this. The Galatian believers were not simply changing religions or changing churches, but were actually abandoning the very grace of God. To make matters worse, they were deserting the very God of grace. To turn from grace to law is to desert the God who saved us so that anyone who has been rescued from their depravity that would desert God is absolutely astonishing Paul is astonished and he goes on to add to that in the next couple verses and he says anyone then who would preach a gospel anyone who would teach a gospel that would say that it is Jesus plus anything else anyone who would do that is cursed to hell is eternally condemned. And if you consider the source, those are pretty astonishing words too. Paul had given his life. Paul had gone on the mission field. He had given his life so that people would turn to Jesus. He wasn't into the big act of of, uh, condemning people to hell, okay? So Paul, Paul gave of himself. Paul went through shipwrecks. Paul went through torture. Paul went through all kinds of stuff because he was trying to get people to follow Christ, not be sent to hell. Moreover, we see in Romans chapter 9 that he, he says, I would rather myself be removed from the grace of God. I would rather myself not have a relationship with Jesus Christ if the, my Jewish brothers would come to know him. I would rather myself go to hell than my brothers go to hell. Does that sound like a man who is condemning people to hell? But this is the point here. Paul is emphasizing. Paul is making a strong message here that this is a really, really, really big problem. Adding anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ other than the grace of Jesus Christ is a really, really big problem. And what he attacks in verse 10 is the reason it all got started in the first place. It's a defense of himself, no doubt, but it is an attack against how this whole thing got started in the first place. And the, 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 what we call the problem, what we call the sin that caused this thing to kick off is fear of man. Fear of man. Let's read verse 10 together. It says, And I now, trying to win the approval, or excuse me, am I now, Trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, what happened here is Paul has been accused of being a people pleaser. Paul has been accused of of trying to please men by his enemies. When he was around the Jews, guess how he behaved? Like a Jew. When he was around the Gentiles, guess how he behaved? Like a Gentile. And Paul's not ashamed of this. It's not like Paul says, well, that's not true. 
And then that's probably what a people pleaser would have done in this situation. He would say, well, that's not actually true. Let me tell you what is actually true. No, he says, no, that's true. That's true. 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23 says, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Listen, yeah, to the weak I have become weak. To the Jew I have become the Jew. To the Gentile I have become the Gentile. But because of this and because of the way it was perceived, what Paul was doing, it became to them two-faced. Oh, look at him. When he's around them, he's this one way. When he's around us, he's this other way. He's he's just a two-faced guy. But Paul, I think, uses very strong language here, condemning people to hell, and he rebukes the Galatians for this. He says, listen, you're the ones that are fickle, and you're the ones who have teachers who are going to be sent to hell because of what they are teaching. And he basically asks this question in verse 10, what do you think of my people pleasing now? You think I'm a people pleaser now? Do I sound more concerned with your opinion of me? Or do I sound more concerned with what God thinks? See, Paul's desire was never to please man, but to please God. And usually at this point, we wanted to put a nice bow on this. We would say, and therefore, church, we must obey the word of God over and above the word of man. And that is true. But this issue of fear of man goes so much deeper than simply saying, stop. Stop doing it. It goes so much deeper than that. Fear of man is like an octopus. Just because you recognize it's there and you shake your body, it's not falling off. Okay, You've got to pull that thing off one tentacle at a time. And moreover, fear of man is an idol. When we treasure the opinions and the approval of others over and above the opinion and the approval of God. That is fear of man. And this is a big issue. This is a real issue. This is an issue that every single person in here to varying degrees struggles with. So we must discuss it. Here's the reality. Paul did not struggle, as we can see, with fear of man. But his enemies are the ones who struggled with fear of man. Like I said, this is how the whole issue got started off. This is how the whole issue of perverting the gospel came into being. If you turn over just a couple pages with me, turn over to Galatians chapter 6. Just a couple pages over, okay? Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. And this is the truth. Verses 12 and 13 are going to give us a glimpse of the truth of the motives behind the false teachers, okay? So Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to what? Avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So we get two things about, about our false teachers. They are, they're trying to make a good impression outwardly, and they are trying to avoid being persecuted. And the, So here's the idea. The reason that they're trying to change the gospel, the reason that they are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ, is because they are under pressure from others who are demanding it of them. We don't want to be persecuted by these people. We don't want them not to like us. And so we'll do what they say in order that they may like us, in order that there may may be no stress about this. That is fear of man. There's no indication in this that the, the false teachers actually believe what they're teaching. 
But they just want to please men so that they will not be criticized and that they will not be ostracized. Moreover, the false teachers, according to Scripture, weren't even keeping the law themselves. We keep go down to verse 13. It says, Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. They were trying to get people to follow the law in order that they can go to those people who were condemning them in order that they may go to those people who were saying, this is the way it has to be. This is the way that it is. If you want to be a part of what we're doing here, you have got to do it this way. He goes, he said that he or that these false teachers are doing this so that they can go to those people and they may say, look what I have done. Look, I'm not, I'm not actually following the law myself now. You know, whatever. I, I'm not actually worried about that. I'm not worried about my integrity. I'm not worried about my character. What I'm worried about is your opinion. So I can say, listen, I have gotten them to follow into our structure. I have gotten them to follow into our, our paradigm. And so now look at me, pat me on the back. That is fear of man. Isn't it interesting and typical? That the enemies of God and his church are the ones who demand out of you what they do not do themselves and accuse about you what they are guilty of themselves. These are all symptoms of fear of man. And the problem ultimately with fear of man is that it leaves God out of the picture. Warren Wiersbe says these Judaizers... Uh, that means the false teachers were cowardly compromising, or excuse me, were cowardly compromisers who mixed law and grace, hoping to please both Jews and Gentiles, but never asking whether or not they were pleasing God. That's what the false teachers did. They were trapped by their fear of man to such a deep degree that they lost focus on Jesus, and it led to a perversion of the gospel. And the, the scary reality is the same thing can and does happen today. We're so worried about what others think. We're so stressed. We're so, we're so overwhelmed by the opinion of others that we will allow it to deflect us, deflect our thoughts, deflect our eyes, deflect our hearts from Jesus Christ. And so we must ask the question this morning, not looking at our neighbor, not looking at our church, but looking at ourselves. Do you fear man? In your own heart, ask the question, do I fear man? Let's define our term a little bit better. If you want to turn over with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. I think we get a pretty solid biblical definition of what fear of man is. John 12, verses 42 and 43. It says, yet at the same time, Many, even among the leaders, believed in him. So people were following Jesus. Jewish people were following Jesus. And they were believing in Jesus. And I want you to see this. They, they have a belief in Jesus, okay? It says, but because of the Pharisees, read man, because of man, because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear. So we have fear of man tied right into this passage. But because of their fear, the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue. Now here is the real clincher here. Here's the real meat of the definition. This next little phrase. For they loved 
the praise from men more than praise from God. They love the praise from men more than praise from God. That is, they feared men because they felt like they had more to lose by disappointing man than by disappointing God. A different way of maybe defining it is placing more weight on our reputation before man than our reputation before God. Listen, church, if anything should astonish us this morning, that should astonish us. If anything should shock us, if anything should bring a chill down our spine this morning, that should be it. That we desire the praise of man more than we desire the praise of God. Who in their right mind desires man's praise over God's praise? Yet, that is the sin. That's the description of this sin. J.R. Vassar says it like this, and I want you to pay attention to uh, the different kind of things he asks here. He says, when you have a deep concern about what others think of you, when there's this controlling desire for human approval and a controlling fear of people's rejection, where you desire to be respected, you desire to be esteemed, you desire to be admired, you desire to be included, and you have an accompanying fear of being overlooked, of being mistreated, of being neglected, of being excluded, of being victimized... It's the fear of man. Now I do want to say briefly here that these are not all illegitimate things. These are not bad things. It's not a bad thing to be wanted. It's not a bad thing uh, uh, to, to, let me just look over this list real quick, to be esteemed. It's not a bad thing that people would admire you. It's not a bad thing to not want the, the reproval of other men. In fact, if we think about it in our own lives, there's been many times where these very things have kept us from going into sin. We didn't want others to think poorly of us, so we didn't step off into that disobedience. We didn't step off into that sin, and this has actually proved to be a good thing. But, J.R. Vassar continues, the problem is when these natural legitimate desires become inordinate, or they become excessive, or they become controlling. When we become consumed with what people think of us, when we become filled with excessive concerns over how we appear before people, When we start to need the approval of someone or anyone, even people we don't know. What happens is we begin to define ourselves by the responses of others. Or, worse yet, our perceived or our perception of how they perceive us. Which could be completely false. But we we begin to define ourselves in that way. And so we're going, to, we're going to throw out a little test here, okay? We're going to throw out a, a short test about a diagnostic questions about whether we have, we struggle individually. Think about yourself. Do I struggle with the fear of man? Questions to kind of determine that, okay? This, these come from Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Number one, do you need something from others? Do you expect a lot from people? Number two, Do you crave compliments? Do you crave compliments? Do you go as far as to degrade yourself, Rodney Dangerville style, just so someone else will pick you up? Oh, I look fat in this dress. No, you don't. You look beautiful in that dress. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I've done it. Not not the dress thing. That sounded bad. (laughs) Anyways, number three. Are you ever afraid... You'll be exposed as an imposter. 
Do you feel like you have to manage your reputation? Yeah, that people's impressions uh, have to be controlled around you so that they won't dig deep and find out the truth of who you are. Number four, are you overly concerned with how you look, with what you weigh, and what you wear? Are you overly concerned about this? Are you, do you find yourself in the mirror nonstop worrying about what other people think that you look like? Number five, do you think of your self-esteem and self-worth a lot? Do you need others to boost you up uh, when you feel uh, like, like you're lacking? When you're lacking in some way, that you need others to come and pick you up? Do you often feel, number six, do you often feel painfully unappreciated? I do this, and I work so hard. I try so hard. No one ever says thank you. No one ever gives me a pat on the back. No one ever tells me how good it is, how nice it is to have me around. And if that's you, does that come from a need to be appreciated? A need to be applauded? A need to be affirmed? Number seven, do you make excuses for your mistakes? Justify bad behavior or shift blame because you can't handle the thought of failing before people? Number eight, do you show favoritism? Do you show favoritism? Do you show favoritism to those who might have a little bit better job than you do? Show favoritism to those who might have a little bit more status than you have. Show favoritism to those who might have a little bit more money than you have so that you might grow. Your, your uh, opinion of yourself, the worldly opinion of you, might grow up into their level. You can gain a little bit from that relationship. So you show a little bit of favoritism towards those people, but look down a little bit. Maybe just, maybe just a little bit, but you look down a little bit on those you consider just a little bit lower than you. Number nine, are you overcommitted? You look at your schedule and you say, I am overcommitted because I have lost the ability to say no. C.S. Lewis kind of does this uh, humorous uh, insight from his, his article called The Inner Ring. And it says, men tell not only their wives but themselves that it is a hardship to stay late at the office or the school or on some bit of important extra work which they have been let in for because they and so-and-so and the two others are the only people left in the place who really know how things are run. But it is not quite true. It is a terrible bore, of course, when old fatty Smithson draws you aside and whispers, Look here, we've got to get you in on this examination somehow. Or, Charles and I saw at once that you've got to be on this committee. A terrible bore. But how much more terrible if you were left out. It is tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons. But to have them free because you don't matter, that is much worse. Are you overcommitted? Number ten. Do you get easily embarrassed? Does the fear of rejection control your actions? And number 11, finally, do you compare yourself to others and feel good when you win and feel envy when you lose? If we do any of these things, then we are defining ourselves by what others think of us. We are broken people looking to other broken people to fix our inward problem that only God can fix. And the thought of losing that praise is enough for us to say no to the God of the universe. This is the fear of man. And it is absolute bondage.
It is absolute bondage. I wish we had more time to go over a series uh, of of ways that we can deal with this, but we're going to just jump straight to the heart of it. There is only one true, final, everlasting liberation from fear of man. Paul talks about it right here at the end of verse 10. He says, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is just reiterating the teaching of Jesus here. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Listen, I can't be Jesus' servant if all my life is in servitude to the opinion and praise of others. I can't do it, and neither can you. However, if I want to find true and abiding freedom, it is actually found in bondage. If you want to find true and abiding freedom, it is found in bondage to Jesus Christ. It is found back where Paul started this whole thing, found in the unrevised, unaltered gospel of Jesus Christ. It is found when the only commendable one gets condemned, so the condemned ones may be commended. It is found when the Son, because of our sin, gets treated like the enemy, so that we who are enemies because of our sin could be treated like sons. It is found when God places our sins on His Son and treats Jesus like He lived our lives, so that, so, so that He could treat us like we lived Jesus' life. And this is the beauty of the Gospel. You are accepted. You are approved. You are favored And you are commended. Scripture teaches us that the father looked down at his son. And he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so those who are in his son, he looks down at you and he looks down at me. And he says, you are my child. And in you I am well pleased. You are no longer defined by your past. You are no longer defined by what you are trying to achieve. You are no longer defined by how you perceive what others say about you. The gospel displaces all other definitions and gives you a one-word summary that will mark you forever. And that one-word summary of who you are in Christ is this one word, His. You are His. Do you believe that? If you were in Christ this morning, do you believe this? You are His. I'm not into this. I know I did it last week, but I'm going to do it again this week, even though I'm not really into this. But I want us to say that together because there's something powerful. Let's bring this word out together. We're going to say, I am His. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to say it out loud with me this morning. One, two, three. I am His. Do you believe that? One more time. I am His. We're His. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. We don't have to show up and, and, and put on our best. We don't have to make, make a presentation and put on a mask of something that other than who we truly are. Because we are His. We're covered. We're taken care of. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to try to be something than what He has made us. We are fearfully and we are wonderfully made in the image of our God and Father and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. What more do we want? We are His. C.S. Lewis says, It is written that we shall stand before Him, shall appear, shall be inspected, 
The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, to not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Maybe you get stuck in seeking the praise of man over the praise of God. Maybe you have an unhealthy desire to be approved by others. Maybe you crave compliments and compare yourself to others. Maybe you struggle this morning to a great degree with the fear of man. And you look at God and you don't understand. You don't understand how He could approve someone like you. You don't understand how he could commend someone like you. You don't understand how we could praise someone like you. How could God love someone like me? You may not get it. And no one fully does. But so it is in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I praise you. I thank you. (laughs) That this love is a blinding love. God. That this love is an all-encompassing, all-powerful, all-encapsulating love, God. That you love us so incredibly deeply, Father. That we have this tendency in our heart to raise up others around us above you. doesn't make sense if we can sit back and talk about it from a Bible study point of view. But it's real, God. So many in this room, including me, Father, struggle with this sin of idolatry. So many in this room struggle with how they fit in. How they they present themselves. Again, not all bad stuff. But Lord, not the best stuff. God, we are accepted. We are approved. We are loved. God, we don't need man's approval. God, I pray that in this room where there is a heart that has been desiring the praise of man over the praise of God, that you would bring conviction this morning, that you would bring repentance this morning, you would bring repentance over the next several months, God, and that there would be life change, Father. This is one of those things, God, you are so big that you can handle it right now. Be completely done with it, Father. But it's one of those things, God, that what I've seen, Father, it just feels like it has tentacles. By your grace, Lord, you can remove those tentacles from us. Father, we don't have to be afraid of man. We don't have to struggle with this, Lord. And Lord, God forbid, but may may you protect us, God, when that fear of man would lead us to alter your gospel. Reach to have their approval at your expense. Oh God, forgive us where we have done that. Heal us from this disease. Help us to find our our joy. Help us to find our esteem. 
Help us to find ourselves in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are those in here who do not know Him, those in here because they have never given their lives to Jesus Christ, there are those in here who could not say, I am His. Lord, I pray by Your grace You would move and they would respond. Father, I love You. I pray that you work in a mighty way here at Weston Baptist Church. And I pray that you work in a mighty way even this morning. God, I love you. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.